Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, today is the uh, 14th uh, anniversary of my mother's leaving this world, Sarachaya Bas Are Hakohen. Um, Sarachaya, that was her name in, in Hebrew anyway, her name in English was Shirley. Sarachaya uh, is, is actually, if you want to translate it literally, that name from Hebrew would mean princess of life. And she was really, that, that characterizes her greatly. Um, we know that one of the uh, remnants of prophecy that's still around is the ability of a parent to look into the soul of the child and to name the child. That the, the name of a person is considered more than just a name. It's considered a, a prophetic manifestation of the mission of their soul. Because what, what a person's name contains is actually what the person has to accomplish in this world. So there's, it's, 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 it's quite a fascinating dynamic. And, and if you think about it, if it's, if it's prophecy... That means that the parent is actually reading the soul, which means that the, the name is already there on some level. In other words, it's not that they, if you want to take this teaching, you know, to the, in its fullest extent, it's not that the parent um, gains an insight, it's that the parent is able to see what's there. Because if you think about what, what is prophecy in general, is that prophecy is that one is able to receive the word of God. So if the if the parent is having a prophetic experience in terms of naming a child, that means that the name is already there and that the parent is able to divine, so to speak, what, what the child's name is. So, so our names, we, we can really learn a lot about ourselves and, and what we need to do in this world from our own names because it's a, a description of our, our, of our mission. So my mother was princess of life and... And, and she was incredibly energetic and, and active and, and alive. And, and, you know, I have so many memories of her and just things that she imparted to me, which is just walking down the street in, in Manhattan. So I don't know how many of you know what it is to kind of grow up in Manhattan, but, but there's not much nature. And, you know, there's just kind of scattered trees uh, sometimes. And I remember, like, just as a little kid, when we'd walk by, like, one of these little trees that was given sort of, like, permission to grow, and, and it was springtime, and we saw, like, little buds on the trees, my mother would stop me, and she would say, look, look, and she would point out these, these little tiny green dots coming out of this, you know, very thin branch, but she would just be glowing, she'd be so happy, and, um, and another thing, uh, you know, this might be a story that might not be so remarkable if, if it took place in, in, a, in a small town in Kansas or something like that. But, but again, we lived in Manhattan, which is you, you don't even know your own neighbor, usually, who lives you know, on, on your floor, much less a, a greater sense of community, usually, for, for the most part. So with that in mind, I remember my mother baking chocolate cakes for the, for the local fire department that she would bring. And again, you know, in a, in a smaller town, not so remarkable maybe, but in the middle of Manhattan to bake a chocolate cake and bring it a few blocks to the fire department was just, you know, that, that was remarkable, you know. And again, a, along those lines, um, the elevator um, that, that we take up and down, I remember coming home from school and just being a, a, just a little kid and, and there was a little kind of where the elevator man sat just underneath that. There was, a, there was a little space. There was a little stool, a little space underneath that. And on a daily basis, I would walk into the elevator and I would see under the stool there would be a, an empty mug and a plate. 
And that was from my mother. My mother would bring a cup of tea to the elevator man and a, and a piece of cake uh, or some cookies to the cake every or to the elevator man every day. And if I didn't see it there, then I would see it by our door. There would be, you know, by the entrance to our front door, there would be the, the, the empty mug and the, and the plate. And um, just what, what that says to me, what that, what that taught me, and, and my father was a big part of that also. And, and, and it's funny because my Rebbe, Reb Shlomo Karlach, was, was, was also someone who was re- remarkable. They shared this same quality, which was that boundaries, which normally speaking, interpersonally, that people would, well, why are you talking to him? Or why are you going over there? There were no real boundaries um, in, in the most positive way. Uh, they were very respectful. So in terms of privacy and things like that, of course, there were boundaries. But in terms of interpersonally, they understood that we're all brothers and sisters. And so in, in that respect, there weren't boundaries. And so you could walk up to someone and you could talk to anyone, really. And, and that, was, that was an awesome thing. And that really that had a big impact on me and how, how I've gone through life. Um, and with this in mind, I want to revisit one of the, one of the famous questions um, and just to approach it from a, a slightly different angle. You know, we're coming up on the great holiday of Shavuos, which is the, the anniversary, um, the day that, that we received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And that's going to be this coming Saturday night, and the tradition is to learn all night, stay up all night learning. And in, in all... Uh, large communities, there are great programs, and people bring out the most interesting um, esoteric lectures. You know, in fact, two in our community, I saw two different places, are doing uh, analysis of interpretations of dreams. And sometimes you get stuff on magic or zodiac or things like all those sort of like, kind of like otter topics. People, in order to keep people fascinated and, and, and awake, basically, that's sort of the primary motive, they just pull out all the stops in terms of very interesting lectures, or they'll fly in people who are fascinating uh, lectures. And so it's really, it's a wonderful time to connect with the Torah. So, so we receive the Torah, and of course that's, that's the Ten Commandments, if you will, it's way more than that, but, but nonetheless, that's, that's, I'm just speaking colloquially, colloquially uh, I'll be able to pronounce that one of these days. Um, and, and you've got five on one side and five on the other. So the first five, famously, are what we call Adam Lamakom, which means person to God, meaning, you know, keep the Sabbath. So that would be a classic example of a person to God mitzvah. And the second five are what we call Adam Lechavero, person to person, a, a, a person's relationship. Don't, don't steal. Don't be jealous, things like that. So those are classic person-to-person ones. So with that in mind, there's a famous question, which is, how come in the first five, which are person-to-God-related uh, mitzvot, why is the mitzvah to honor one's parents in the first five? Because if you think about it, you're a person, your parents are people, that's your classic person-to-person commandment. Why would that be in the first five? So it, it hit me... The following thing hit me, and I, I also want to connect this to the fact that today is Yom Yerushalayim, which is the day in 1967 that um, uh, the Jewish people uh, reclaimed reclaimed uh, the old city of Jerusalem, including the, the, the Holy Wall, 
and the location of the Holy Temple, the Beis HaMikdash. So this is a great, great day. In fact, there are people, you know, how one feels about, religiously speaking, the, the fact that we have a Jewish state. There are certainly opinions that, that really, that, that's really designed for the arrival of the Messiah. And yet, there's certainly a mitzvah to, to live in the land. So, so the fact that we're there, everyone would agree would be, is unequivocally great. Nonetheless, whether we should institute a state or not, maybe that's something that we wait till the Messiah comes. Or maybe that's necessary um, proactiveness on our part, which unfolds the scenario where the Messiah comes. So, so different, different opinions. But everyone agrees, everyone agrees that the primary simcha is today, is Yom Yerushalayim. In other words, while you might have a, a debate in certain ex- extremes in the, in the Torah ideological community as to the status of um, what we say Yom Hatzma'ut, Independence Day of the state itself, everyone celebrates today as the, as the core of the miracle, the day that we reclaimed the the Temple Mount, you know, so 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 this is really the 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 essence of of our returning to the land is today. So, you know, when I say reclaimed, I'll just tell you a, a funny story. Um, Reb Shlomo was uh, amazing in that he would go everywhere to look for uh, Jewish souls and to try to bring them light even places where other people wouldn't go. So, for instance, to um, ashrams, um, where a religious person wouldn't walk into a place like that, a, a Torah-observant person wouldn't walk into a place like that. Reb Shlomo would go there, and he would play, and he would perform, because he knew that there were a lot of Jews there who were really trying to reconnect with the, with the ultimate source. And so... If no one goes in there, how are they going to connect? You know, they're doing their best to connect. That's where they ended up. But, you know, really they're Jews. So he would go everywhere, in, including ashrams, to come in and to bring back Jews. So he was playing in at one particular ashram, and the Swami there all of a sudden saw how all the people were reacting to him. And the Swami said sort of very angrily to uh, Reb Shlomo, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to, to steal all my followers. And so he said back to him, he said, no, 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 I just want to borrow them back. Wow. <laughs> Meaning to say they're Jews to begin with, you know? So, you know, what do you mean, steal your followers, please? So, so Yerushalayim is always, Jerusalem has always been ours, you know? If we're, if we're back there, we're just... Uh, we're borrowing it back, if you will, you know, with heavy quotation marks on, on both sides of that phrase. Um, so, so we'll get to Yom Yerushalayim in a moment. We'll build to that. But, but I want to return to this, um, this question. It's a very old, very famous question. Why honoring your parents would be in the first five when you're a person, your parents are a person, that's classic person to person, and yet it's in the person to God category. And... And if you think about it, how one relates to their parents, and I'm going to speak very personally because I know everyone has a different experience with their parents, and that's one of the most 
kind of, in, for many people, contentious areas of their entire psychic landscape. You know, that's, that's, that's really pushing a lot of buttons, you know. So I'll just talk from my own experience. And to the extent that you can relate to it, great. If you've had a very different experience, then that's normal, you know. So, but, but thank God I had wonderful, loving parents. And, and the idea is like this. And if you think about it in sort of the, the broadest sense, in the kind of the, like the macro context, it's a very, very beautiful, patient, loving uh, model, which is that a child learns respect and awe and love for their parents and their physical manifestations of, of all these things. Uh, a, a, a mother, you know, feeds her child, a, a father provides, and they, they both protect, and all of these things. And so the child realizes that there's, some, that, there, that there's something above them, something greater than them, something more capable than them, that's, that's protecting and nurturing them. And so they get, in a very real way, a training of how to relate to God. And if you think about it, it's almost like training wheels. You learn all of those emotions, which are all really person-to-God-based emotions. You learn them first from your parents. And then what happens? Because God is invisible. God is invisible. He fills the entire world. He's absolutely everywhere. And yet... At the same time, he's invisible. This is the great paradox. This is the great, um, you know, conflict of the, of, the, of the human condition that we can ask ourselves, where is God? As simultaneously, he's absolutely everywhere. There's no place without him. You know, this is the great sort of like mind-boggling kind of thing of what it means to be a human being in this world. But here's the thing. So, on some level, God is invisible. So, first you... Learn from your parents who are very much there, very concrete presence in your life, how to care, how to look up, how to love, how to be respectful. And then they die after 120. All our parents should live long. Then they're not here anymore. But your obligation, interestingly, on a Torah level, in a halachic level, Jewish law, one's obligation to honor their parents doesn't end after their parents leave this world one still has an obligation to honor their parents. Okay? So all of a sudden, your parents, one's parents become invisible in the way that God is invisible. So let's return back to this notion of like training wheels on a bike. And if we think, and again, remember, we're answering the question, why is honoring your parents in the first five commandments, which are just person to God ones? Because... The whole parent experience from the time that they're in this world to the time that they leave this world is a training wheels exercise in how to serve God. First, it's a very concrete presence. It becomes very much a part of you to look up to and to serve and to realize that you're being nurtured. And then all of a sudden, they're not there anymore. But you realize God is here. He's invisible, but he's here. All of a sudden, you can relate to the fact that you can't quite see him because you know that he's here. Let me put it to you another way. I had um, uh, a conversation with someone. Unfortunately, um, uh, we, we don't live with this so much, thank God, in, in America, but kidnapping is a, 
is a very real thing uh, in certain countries, especially Mexico. And um, someone was telling me who heard it from someone who was kidnapped and thank God was ultimately released. But this is a first-hand story from someone who was kidnapped. And uh, they were sitting in a room and, you know, when it got dark, they couldn't see anything. And there was a table in front of them. And the person reasoned, made the following logical progression, which, I mean, you have to prize this insight because this came from someone who thought of this while he was being kidnapped, <laughs> like he was sitting in his detention place, in his prison of sorts, right? So a, a real genuine spiritual insight that comes at that moment has to be taken very seriously. And a very simple idea, but very strong idea. He said to himself, I know that there's a table in front of me because, you know, I, I, I see it. But at nighttime, I don't see it. I don't see it, but I still know that it's there. And so he extrapolated based on that, that just because I can't see God, it doesn't mean that he's not there. Just like I know the table is here, even at nighttime, when I can't see it. So that's, that's a very strong thought. And that's the, that's the idea that, that even if, after our parents leave, in a way that's sort of like, you know, imagine you're learning to ride a two-wheeler and then there comes that moment where your parent kind of lets go. And you're on your own, but you're not on your own. Right? Meaning to say they leave this world, but then you realize, wait a second, God is here. Because it's all been the entire parent-child relationship has all been a training ground for us to understand and experience godliness. So, so my mom, I want to say one more thing about my mom and then I want to talk more about Yom Yerushalayim. Well, maybe we'll stay with Yom Yerushalayim right now. So I heard from Reb Shlomo the following, that when Mashiach comes we're going to see that the third base Hamigdash, the third holy temple, was always there. That we just didn't have the eyes to see it. You see, we have this model, which is that we have what's called the Yerushalayim Shalmata, the Yerushalayim, the Jerusalem below, and the Yerushalayim Shalmala, the Jerusalem above. So there's a heavenly construct called Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. Not only that, but we have the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple below, and we have the Beis Hamikdash above. So the Beis Hamikdash, as a present, as as a presence, as a distinct spiritual entity, exists even right now. But it exists as the Beis Hamikdash above, as the Holy Temple above, and that's the third Beis Hamikdash. So in terms of the landscape of reality. It's there right now. It's not, it's not in this physical dimension right now. But it exists. The third Beis HaMikdash, the, the Beis HaMikdash above, exists right now. And it's just a question, when is it, when is it coming down? So, so again, we can't see it with our eyes. There's a level of invisibility to it. But it's there. It's there. Now, I want to talk about something a little Kabbalistic in terms of the Svira days that we're in right now. Because 
Everyone knows that we're in between Pesach, Passover, and Shavuos, the receiving of the Torah, this 50-day period. And we're counting each day, counting up to receiving the Torah. And each day has a correlation with, with the spheros. Remember, what's the spheros? Very simply put, that there are different divine energies that God combined to create the world with. That would be the, maybe the simplest way of saying it. But we're going to go into a little more detail. So each one of these days between Pesach and Shavuos, between Passover and receiving Torah, correlates with a different combination of the spheros. So with this in mind, I think it's worthwhile to zero in on what the sphere day for Yom Yerushalayim is. Because if this is the culminating event, much more so, as I mentioned earlier, much more so than the de- declaration of the state of Israel, that reclaiming the, 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 the Beis HaMikdash, the, the Temple Mount, was the climactic moment, right? It would be very interesting to know what sphere of day that, that correlates with, wouldn't it? I mean, because that's sort of a description of the cosmos at that point. So yesterday, so in order to, in order to do it, I want to just sort of go in a sort of a, a, a narrative flow. What's, what was yesterday, and then we'll do what today is, because it works, it's kind of like a one-two punch, okay? So let's start with yesterday, the day before Yom Yerushalayim, okay? That day was Malchus Sheba Yesod. Okay, so let's just do a, just a very kind of Kabbalah 101 kind of overview of, of what that means, okay? So remember, you have ten spherot, which is the whole kind of description of the, the energy that God uses to create the world out of, okay? And the top three, that ten, is divided into two sections, three above and seven below, Okay? So the three above, that's beyond, 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 okay? The seven below are all the more kind of relative to the three above have like the slightest degree of almost tangibility to it or something like that. We can't even discuss the three above. So in terms of the seven below. Now that seven below is also divided into two sections, six and one, Okay? So the bottom one is called Machus. Machus means, I guess it would be translated as kingship, but it describes this physical domain of earth and is something that is a, the nature of the energy of Machus is something that purely receives. It's receiving, okay? It's like a vessel. That's Machus. That's this dimension. And what is it receiving? It's receiving the light from above. And so that six if you go in the sphere of order, number six in the sphere of order is Yesod. Okay, Yesod means foundation. So, so now picture in your mind the following thing. You've got this divine flow, that's the six, and that's called Yesod. That's grouped together under this heading called Yesod, which means foundation, and that's the divine flow. Okay, and then number seven on the bottom, that's Malchus. That's receiving the energy. Okay? So, what was yesterday, the day before Yom Yerushalayim? Malchus Sheba Yesod. In other words, 
the level of malchus within your soul. So in other words, that's an exact description of the model of creation. It's an exact description of the model of creation. In other words, that's a day that's describing the exact harmony of the flow of creation itself. And then what's the next day? The next day is we get Yerushalayim back. In other words, as soon as the cosmos becomes chiropractically aligned, if you will, as soon as that flow becomes rectified, what's the most natural occurrence that comes after that? The Jews are in Jerusalem. The Jews have the Holy Temple back. It's the most natural occurrence in the world. And now, interestingly, what's the, what's the description of Yom Yerushalayim today? Chesed Shabamachus, which means, Chesed means kindness. Machus, again, describes this realm that we're in right now. So the kindness that's given over to this realm, which is the rectification of Jerusalem, which is the place where the light, the divine light, comes to first, and then spreads out to the entire world. So it's the chesed, the kindness, that permeates all of Malchus, the entire world. That's when we're back in the land. That's when we have the Holy Temple again. So you see, there's a very precise correlation between the historical events and, and the sphere of day. It's, 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 quite, it's quite beautiful, actually. It's really, it's really remarkable. It's exactly as it should be. You know, I'll tell you just, uh, and my mother left this world, you know, today, on Chesed Sheba Malchus. And, and it's, worth, it's worth reflecting on the fact, you know, there's something kind of weird about Jews, which is that when we go to Israel, religious Jews, when they go to Israel, like, what is a vacation? You go grave hopping. <laughs> you go from this... <laughs> This kever, this grave of this holy person to this grave. And it's, I don't want to call it a party, but it's, it's, it's great. You, you, everyone loves it. No, no one complains like, oh, another cemetery. You know, it's like, oh, where are we going to next? The Rambam? Oh, where are we going to next? The Ari? Where are we going to next? You know, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? You know, it's the greatest thing in the world. You're like visiting the greatest people ever. And of course, their tombs are kind of, divine portals where, you know, it's very uh, propitious, very auspicious to pray at, at those places because you've got the, you're basically in, in very good company. You know, I remember my, my dad once told me this story and I, I forgot the exact names. I think it was Rothschild. Someone came up to Rothschild. I don't know if it's a true story, but um, the, the point is good anyway. Someone came up to Rothschild and said, uh, you know, ask for a loan. And Rothschild said, you know something, I'm going to give you something even better than a loan. And what he did was, he put his arm around the man, and in this very public area, he walked all around, you know, with his arm around this man. And so, everyone, that's the end of the story, everyone understood, who is this person who is such an intimate, such a close, you know, advisor and friend of Rothschild? And so this man's personal stock, in terms of the eyes of everyone, just skyrocketed. And so now he was a, a person of note. And now he said, that, this is going to be much better than a loan. So similarly speaking, the idea of going to a gravesite of a tzaddik, 
You know, you're, you're next to the holy man, and God is looking at you, and the holy man has his arm around you. And so, you know, your prayers, like, they, they mean more, so to speak. And, of course, it makes sense, because who are you? You, you have a value system that's such that you sought out the company of the holy person. So that reflects greatly on you. So it actually makes great sense that your, that your stock rises, so to speak, that you made the effort to go to these places. So the reason why, and by the way, just, a, just a, one note, and no one would do this intentionally, but it's just worth saying, just so you all have clarity in your mind. When one goes to these places, one doesn't pray to the person himself, because that, that would be a form of idol worship. You just pray in the merit of this person, right? That in the merit of every great thing that this person did, and then you're off on your own and you pray whatever is in your heart, right? But you don't direct your prayers to the, to the holy person because that, that, thank God, as we understand it, each one of us has a direct connection with God and we don't need any go-betweens, you know? If you think about it, the idea that anyone would need a go-between is quite ridiculous, because God fills the entire world and directs every single moment. Why would you ever need a go-between? The, just conceptually, the idea is just so off. Um, so anyway, but the idea of one's yurtzai, we should all live long, is, 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 is important. And it's, it's important in understanding just the Jewish uh, view of life and understanding of life. Because while the rest of the world might, and in some ways, understandably, view the, this notion as morbid, we don't. Because it says in Perkei Avos, in the Ethics of the Fathers, it says, better the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. And the reason is because when one, when one is born, one is all potential, but all unrealized potential. And... At the end of one's life, one is just a bundle of accomplishment. And that's what we celebrate. Because if you think about it, the, the calendar is, is absolutely studded with the yurtzeit. That means the, the anniversary of, of, of someone's leaving this world. The yurtzeit of this great person and the yurtzeit of that great person and the yurtzeit of that great person. You, you might ask yourself, why not celebrate their birthdays? Wouldn't that be a, a happier thing? But we understand something, which is that nothing comes free. Everything is hard work in this world. And to celebrate one's birthday, there's something, if you think about it, cheap and false. Because, because part of our time in this world is essentially the creation of ourselves. And we create ourselves through our deeds. And so the birth of the person isn't complete until the person is finished in this world. Then you can see who this person is, based on their accomplishments, based on their choices, based on the effort that they made to try to accomplish certain things. You know, one of the things that just, just I find brain-bending, and it's just, it's just a good example, I think, is how you feel about yourself isn't necessarily what is actually going on. You know, it's a very faulty bar- barometer of what is often real. Sometimes people have an exaggerated sense of their own accomplishments. 
And, but probably more often than not, especially in this generation, I think people have a, a, uh, a, 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 an under-appreciation, if that's a word, of, of what they're actually accomplishing. They don't fully appreciate who they are and, 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 and what they're doing. And, and, and an example of this is Theodore Herzl, I think. Um, Theodore Herzl led the movement to create the modern state of Israel. And, excuse me, this was, this was, I mean, you talk about Don Quixote, like one of the great words, quixotic, you know, just, how, how could you do it? How could you do it? I heard Rabbi Wein say that, that, that uh, Theodor Herzl got a meeting with the Kaiser, which was the king of Germany. And the king of Germany said to Herzl the following thing, because Herzl said, please, uh, we want to establish the, the state of Israel. And just to have gotten a meeting with the Kaiser was just, you know, off the charts. And he said, the only way, and I'm paraphrasing this, I, I hope that I'm getting the, all the exact details right, but this is, this, this is what he said. He said, the only way there's going to be the establishment of the state of Israel, and this is, you know, probably around World War I, a little, before, before, a little bit after, definitely before World War II that this conversation took place. He says, if the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire collapsed, if the German Empire collapses, and if the English Empire collapses. Now that's like saying, I, I hope I got those details right, but he was talking about the various empires of that day that, that existed. Maybe he mentioned the Turkish Empire as well, I'm not sure. But, but he mentioned the dominant, all the like three or four empires that existed at that time, and saying if they all collapse, then, then maybe it will happen. They all collapsed! They all collapsed. I mean, it was, that was like saying if I blink and I'm on Saturn and there are hotels around me. On Saturn. You know, I mean, it was the definition of something that was absolutely impossible to happen. And it happened. It happened. But here was the point why I brought it up. Herzl didn't see the establishment of the state of Israel in his life. And he organized a couple, two or three, worldwide congresses to try to advance this. The first one was actually very successful. The second and the third one less successful. I don't know if there was a third one. At least the second one was less successful. Whatever it was, the last one that he, that he kind of orchestrated was actually considered a failure. And he didn't see the establishment of the state of Israel in his lifetime. And here's the point, all leading up to this one statement. He died thinking himself a failure. And yet, the whole enterprise was built on his efforts. The entire enterprise was built on his efforts. And so this is what I'm trying to say, that one's thoughts about oneself don't necessarily correlate with the reality. And to me, to take such an epic figure and to, for him to have Die thinking that he was a failure is, is extraordinary. And it should be a cautionary lesson for us that, that, that we can't afford to think of ourselves and, and to torture ourselves in that way. 
We have to celebrate every accomplishment and keep on working. And, and that's what it is, and to stay positive. And we'll do as much as we can and as much as God allows us to accomplish. You know, I think, I'll just offer a private theory here, um, based on Moses and Aaron, I think maybe one of the reasons why God didn't allow Herzl to see the establishment of the state of Israel, by the way, my personal opinion, is that no one should say that Herzl created the state of Israel. No one should say that Herzl brought the Jews back to Israel. In the same way that Moshe took the Jews out of Egypt, but didn't lead them into Israel, so that no one should say Moshe did it as opposed to God did it. So I think that no one should say that Herzl did it as opposed to God did it. Okay? So because these things are so divine in their in their in, in, in just their unfolding that 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 one shouldn't misplace what, what, what the actual dynamic is. So in Perke Ambos, it also says that better to go to a house of mourning than it is to go to like a party. And why, again, one might say, wow, what a morbid teaching. You want to hang out with depressed people who are mourning their dead? Like, what's going on? Like, celebrate life. Yes, of course, celebrate life. Yes, of course. That's, that's of course. That, that always remains the truth. But be aware of our own mortality. Because that will drive us to do greater things. When we understand that any day, like, we should all live long, but any day... Any day, any day, you know, it says do tshuva a day before one dies. And so, you know, it's worth just reflecting on just the methodology of the, of the Mishnah right now, just because you, you see a beautiful example of how Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi uh, put down the oral law here. In this, in this teaching, this is just a nice case, case study. Um, it says, do tshuva a day before you leave this world. Now remember, so what's the, what's, the, what's the problem with that teaching? The problem with that teaching is, how do I know when I'm going to leave the world? <laughs> so so just, to, just to take a... a, a then, then you have to, you have to, so to speak, unpack, like just like you unpack a suitcase. It's all kind of zipped up in a closed bag. So the Mishnah was deliberately written in a, pla- in, a, in a way where you can't just simply read it and understand it. You have to engage with the text and you have to unpack the text like one unpacks a suitcase. So when it says do tshuva, return to God, in other words, rectify our ways, elevate our ways, fix our, 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 our mistakes a day before we die, then you say, well, how do I know when I'm going to die? I could die any day. Ah, so it's telling me to do tshuva every single day. Now look how I just engaged the text and unpacked the text. Now, the methodology that I was referring to is, at this point, just as a historic footnote, 
At a certain point in Jewish history, about 2,000 years ago, the oral law was starting to be forgotten. And we had actually a commandment not to write it down. And yet, Yehuda Hanasi said, you know something? Unless we write it down, it's going to be forgotten. So here was an example where in order to save the Torah, you had to, to do that. But look at his genius. He wrote it down in such a way where it remained what we call Torah Shabal Peh. It remained the oral law even as it was written. How so? Well, you say, well, it's written. Once it's written, it's no longer oral. No, it was written in such a way that it was written, but it wasn't written. It was written, but you had to engage the text in terms of unpacking it, which is the essence of the dynamics of the Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral Torah. So this way, in his greatness, he was able to save the Torah, and yet at the same time, you know, preserve the essential dynamic of it, which is, which is this give and take. Okay. So, so, you know, put another way, he had to break the Torah in order to save the Torah. Now, it's, it's worth just noting that there are people, contemporaries, who say, that's what I'm doing too. <laughs> that's what I'm doing when I say that this mitzvah no longer applies to this generation, and this mitzvah no longer applies to this generation, and this mitzvah no longer applies to this generation. And you know what? That's great if you're a Yehuda Hanasi. You know? If you, if you can look Yehuda Hanasi in the eye and go, you and me, man. That's right. My brother. Let's get some beers. You know? It's, it's either 99.9% of the, percent of the time naivete or arrogance. That is the operative sort of, uh, uh, you know, force when one tries to change the tradition. It's either naivete, like, everyone's doing it. Why not? Or simple arrogance. That, yes, I am as great. Yes, I know what he doesn't know. I know how to turn on a Mac computer. He would have looked at that box and thought it was a paperweight. You know, so yes, I am better than he is. You know, so, you know, it's one or the other. And in the rare, rare, rare moment where it is breaking the Torah in order to save the Torah, it's coming from someone who is very exalted and very, 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 very great. Very great. Very great. And it's just... Just as a, I'm just putting that out as a, as a cautionary tale, lest we think that, this, that there's a blanket permission and a, a blanket precedent for, for us. You see, I just want to go a little bit further into this, and, and I say this with all love and, and, and respect, but, but nonetheless, we have to critically approach certain things and just to kind of look at them and, and, and ask ourselves what actually is going on. Because, and then we can make up our own opinions. Meaning to say we can arrive at our own peace of mind on this subject. But, but it's worth at least being knowledgeable in terms of how we address these things. So what am I referring to right now? You see, our tradition is that God gave Moshe the Torah, and we're coming up to Shavuos, so it's, it's appropriate to discuss this. 
God gave Moshe and the Jewish people the Torah at Mount Sinai. And that, that was the Torah. He actually gave us the Torah. Actually, the Torah that we have in the scroll that we keep in the ark, that is actually what God gave us, right? And, uh, and what's so amazing about Judaism and Torah is that God gave it this revelation before this prophetic experience to simultaneously approximately two and a half million people. Now, if you look at the other major monotheistic religions in the world, Christianity and Islam, they each have one prophet and they tell their followers, trust me, right? That's what it is. Now, isn't it interesting that God gave it in front of two and a half million people and then a couple of thousand years later and beyond that, only the one who tells everyone, trust me. Well, you know, why not give it to the whole world again? <laughs> why keep it a secret? Clearly, clearly there was no secret keeping initially. You know, and it, it's worth asking oneself this question. Why this happened? And then interestingly, you know, Christianity says that this 100% happened. You would think, well, Christianity is a different religion. They'll say, no, that didn't happen. No, they 100% say it happened. This revelation at Mount Sinai before two and a half, approximately, million people. But then they say God changed his mind. Now, interestingly, Islam, you would say, none of that happened. Christianity didn't happen. Mount Sinai didn't happen. Islam says, it absolutely happened. The revelation before two and a half million people, approximately, then comes Christianity. Then comes Islam. God changed his mind again. And just told one person. So, clearly, Islam and Christianity have to work it out. Because God keeps on changing his mind. So Christianity says, no, he didn't change his mind again. He only changed his mind once. And then Islam says, no, he changed his mind twice. And Judaism says, yo, God never changed his mind. <laughs> He never changed his mind. So, so that's, that's kind of just on the, the simplest level of revelation. But let's work within Judaism for a moment. Approximately 250 years ago, there comes what we call the uh, Haskalah, the quote-unquote enlightenment. And in some ways, there was a, a great, great enlightenment that came into the world in terms of the development of modern science. Awesome breakthroughs, awesome breakthroughs to be able to describe God's world in, in detail in a, in a in a provable way and to just to quantify it. And just it's awesome what's gone on in the sciences. So in, in terms of the the enlightenment in that respect, fantastic. But the enlightenment also existed in a religious way. And in that way, I'll put sort of, you know, quotations around this world in, 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 in enlightenment. And what happened was, essentially, people said, well, the Torah isn't what the way we've observed it. Really, what the, what the Torah, what we've had, the way we re, uh, observed it for the last 3,000 years. It isn't. Now, this is, what I'm talking about right now is the reform movement 
conservative movement, reconstructionist movement, you know, basically those movements, okay? They come and say, no, the Torah is not the way we've been observing it for the last 3,000 years. It's a completely different thing. So, this is just me talking, but just on the most simple level, one would have to say, oh, so then we've been doing it wrong for the last 3,000 years. So if we've been doing it wrong for the last 3,000 years, don't you need to be a prophet to say that? In other words, doesn't your level of divine revelation have to be greater than Moses's? And when it says, if you want to say that, no, no, we just got it wrong, this is the way it was initially, when it says in the Torah, and it's the most oft-repeated phrase in the entire Torah, God spoke to Moses saying, God spoke to Moses saying, you have to say, God, well, no, that's wrong. God didn't speak to Moses saying. So why did Moses write down God spoke to Moses saying when God didn't speak to Moses saying? Meaning to say, meaning to say, that's a lie. Right? So in other words, Moses is either a liar or he was telling the truth and you're a greater prophet than Moses. I mean, in, my, in the simplicity of my analysis, that seems to be the main alternatives. So, so if the orchestrators of this new theology are greater prophets than Moses, where are, where, how come no one knows their name? He's <laughs> like, I mean, think about the greatest religious figures of all time. You would think if you're a greater prophet than Moses, you should be pretty much of a household name, shouldn't you? I would think so. So where, and where are their descendants? Unfortunately, their descendants aren't Jewish anymore. So, so, one has to ask themselves this question. What are these movements which have redefined what, what it is we're supposed to be doing? What are these movements? So, it's important for me to say that our view is that anyone whose mother is Jewish is Jewish. 100%, which means that anyone who calls themselves, say, a Reformed Jew or whatever it is, if their mother is Jewish, they're as Jewish as Moses is. They're as Jewish as Abraham is. They're as Jewish as I am, certainly. No, no one is questioning anyone's Jewishness right now. All I'm talking about, this is not a personal thing that I'm saying right now. I'm just talking about the status of the theology. And, and, and that's it. And then you can ask, and then you can answer, you can answer these questions on your own. And you can come to your own conclusions. I'm not telling you what to think. But I'm just trying to give you a, a survey of what the, of what the history is. Because how something can have the status of, well, it's just a difference of opinion. That's the way you see it. By the way, Torah, the, the 3,300 year old version of Torah, has huge differences of opinion. If you open up the Talmud, if you open up the Code of Jewish Law, you'll see great varieties of opinion. But they're all based on the same historical process. 
that 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 the Torah comes from God, basically. And there's a unfolding throughout the generations. All of that, so, so there's room for different opinions. I'm not trying to bang my hand on the table and say, you know, and be all brimstone and fight. There's room for different opinions. Absolutely. But nonetheless, let's just kind of keep the landscape of, of the history in mind. That, 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 that's important. So let me just wrap it up um, with the following thing, something I think special and on a, on a spiritual note. The Torah, the Torah really was given, when, when God gave over the Torah to the Jewish people and the whole world heard it at Mount Sinai, the first word of the Torah is the word Anochi. Anochi begins with the letter Aleph. Anochi means I am. In other words, God's first utterance was, was he was just saying, I exist. Here I am. Here I am. Okay? And interestingly, and it's a, just an expression of tremendous love, if God wanted to give his credentials over, you would imagine, if, if I were writing it, I would say, I am God who created the heavens and the earth, or created all of existence. That's, what, that's the line I would have written. And what God wrote was very different. God wrote, I am God who took you out of Egypt, out of slavery. So in other words, what God was communicating in the most loving, beautiful way is, yeah, of course I created absolutely everything. But you know what? Even more important than that, I'm with you in all of your suffering. That's what God communicated to us as his first utterance. I'm the God who took you out of Egypt. I'm God who's there with you at all times. At all times, even when things get really dark. I'm there with you. Now, this past Shabbos was a very interesting Shabbos for a number of reasons. One of them is because um, many years... It may even be most years, I'm not sure, but, but, but it's a very frequent or even the majority experience that, that at a certain time during the year, um, Pesach, Passover is when it happens, is when the Torah portion that we read in Israel gets on its own track and we start reading a different Torah portion outside of Israel. And that only happens for a short period of time. And then we read a double Parsha to catch up. We read two portions on Shabbos to catch up with Israel. And then we're all on the same page again. And interestingly, I I just will throw this out just as a bit of sort of speculation. But perhaps, because it could happen any time during the year. Why do we start reading different parts of the Torah and we're on a different schedule after Passover? Because when we leave Egypt, like the people who are in Israel, the point was to get into Israel, right? Get the Torah and go into Israel. The people in Israel got into Israel. And we're outside of Israel. We're still trying to catch up with sort of like the Passover experience, trying to get back into Israel. So it makes sense that the people outside of Israel should still be trying to catch up to the people who are in Israel since they got to Israel. That was the whole point of leaving Egypt, right? To get the Torah and to go into Israel. So, so it makes sense that it happens during that point of the year, I'd just like to suggest. 
Anyway, normally speaking, we read one double Parsha, and then we catch up. So this year what happened was, we read a double Parsha, but in Israel, they also read a double Parsha. So normally speaking, when we'd catch up, we didn't catch up. And then the next time, next week, we read a double Parsha, and they also read a double Parsha. And so this is very unusual. Rabbi Wilson brought this thought. This is very, very unusual. And then a third time they read a double Parsha. And no, they read one Parsha, Bechu Kosai. And we read this past Shabbos, Bahar and Bechu Kosai. And we finally caught up with them. But that was like a very big gap. That doesn't normally happen. And... Um, and the whole notion, I never heard this explained, the philosophy of why you would read a double Parsha. Because normally speaking, you just read one Parsha. So Rabbi Wolfson really explained something very deep and very majestic. What he said was that normally speaking, you just read one Parsha. But when you read two Parshas, that this is a declaration of unity. And that we do it during times of the year when we need the most unity. Because normally speaking, there are only certain parshas that are grouped together and they're always in the same periods of the year. And he says, these are the most spiritually vulnerable periods of the year when we need extra degrees of unity and brotherhood in order to heal, basically, what's going on in the world or to use it as a launch pad to bring us to the next level of redemption. Okay? And he says that when we catch up to Israel, after Passover is always after Lag Omer, Always after Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's Yurtzaitis, the author of the Zohar, right? So he says that what we receive on that day is an le- extra level of depth where we can let go of the material. And once we let go of the material, that gives us the extra merit to catch up and become unified. And he tells a story, which is very interesting. He says the... Which uh, Rebbe was it? The Chedushe Arim, who was the first Ger Rebbe. So the, the, the Chedushe Arim was going away in his wagon. He was leaving a certain town or whatever it was. And there was a man who was trying to catch up with his wagon. And so the assistant, the Gabai of the, of the Rebbe said, that man is trying to slow down the wagon. That man is trying to catch up to you, right? And this man, you know, wanted some fixing for his soul. And the Rebbe was like, no, we're not going to slow down the wagon, which is, you know, kind of striking. You know, the Chedushe Rim was one of the greatest tzaddiks ever. And then he looks back and he sees that this man who was an aristocratic man had a walking stick. He threw his aristocratic walking stick aside so that he could run faster. And then the Rebbe says, okay, slow down the wagon. And then he met with him. Okay? And he said to the man something very interesting. I'm going to read you from uh, Rabbi uh, Wilson's account of this. He said, Then the Rebbe commanded the wagon to stop and explained that one needs to be willing to give something up in order to merit a salvation. So this man threw away his aristocratic walking stick. You know, he humbled himself a little bit. And then he was able to, he was able to get to the Rebbe. Which, a, to me, that's a very searing 
kind of story. And so Rabbi Wolfson builds on this, and he says that, that after Lad Omer, we all give up something. In other words, in other words the, great, the great revelation of spirituality that comes from the anniversary of the death of Yurtzeit of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai causes us all to shed some degree of materialism. And once we shed that degree of materialism, we're able to lift ourselves up and to get back in sync with Israel. And so now we're all on the same page in terms of the Torah portion. Now, I just want to share this one last exploration of the letter Aleph and we'll, we'll finish up. So, if you look at, again, when God spoke at Mount Sinai, the first word that he says is Anochi, I am, I exist, which begins with the letter Aleph. On Shabbos, the Shabbos, this happens every year, the Shabbos right before um, Shavuos, when we receive the Torah, we finish the book of Ayikra, the book of Leviticus. Now, I just want to point out something very interesting about the way Vayikra, Leviticus, is structured. It's the middle book of the Torah. Now, that in itself is interesting. You've got two books on one side. You've got Breshis and Shmos, right? Genesis and Exodus on one side. Then you've got Vayikra in the middle. Then you've got Numbers, right? Bamidbar and Devarim, Deuteronomy on the other side. So Vayikra is right in the middle. Now, when the Torah, what is Vayikra talking about? It's talking about the Holy Temple, the Beis Migdash, the Mishkan, and also the Kahanim. And so this is, the, this is the connection between heaven and earth. Okay, so that's in the middle. And in fact, the Beis Migdash, the Holy Temple, humanly speaking, is compared to the neck. The neck connects the head with the body. And so here you have, so to speak, the neck. Now this neck, what is the neck also? The neck is the vav, if you will. The Beis HaMikdash is the letter Vav. Vav is the essence of connection. Grammatically speaking, it connects two phrases in Hebrew. So, so if you think of the name of Hashem going from top to bottom, you have Yud and He, which represents the upper dimensions. Then you have Vav, which, as we were saying earlier, is that conduit. That's the conduit down to the bottom He, which represents this dimension. So, so the Mishkan... The book of Ayikra is the letter Vav, if you will, because it's that connection between heaven and earth, because it's describing the activities of the Kahanim in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple, in the Mishkan, right? And when we encamped in the desert, it was also right in the middle. The Mishkan, the ark that held the Ten Commandments, was right in the middle. So that's, and also that's where the Mishkan was, right in the middle. So it was, it, it, it was sort of a living version of Sefer Vayikra, of the book of Leviticus. So it's that Vav connecting everything. Now, if you look at the first letter of every single Parsha in the book of Vayikra, every single Parsha begins with the letter Vav. The entire book begins with the letter Vav. Every single Parsha in it, except for the last one, which we read right before Shavuos, and that begins with the letter Aleph. Aleph numerically, is one. It stands for the oneness of God. If you take apart the word, the letter Aleph, it's two yuds and above, which if you add that up numerically, it's 10 plus 10 plus 6, that equals 26. So 
So the letter which stands for one, the oneness of God, if you break it apart to its constituent parts, it equals 26, which is the name of God. Yudke So Aleph really represents Hashem on some level. So again, what does Vayikra do? Vayikra is all these vavs, all these series of connections, taking us to the upper realms, right? Connecting us to the Aleph of Hashem, which is how it culminates. That's the last Parsha. And what did we say that, we, that God spoke at Mount Sinai? The first word was Anochi. He begins with the letter Aleph. So we're being ushered to the greatest heights right now. That's where we are in the calendar. We're all being ushered to the greatest heights. Now, Reb Shlomo said the following. There's a debate as to what God said at Mount Sinai. The classic answer is that he said the first two commandments. I am God, your God, and don't have any idols. Okay? Now that's a, if you think about it, a lot of people think that that's basically two versions of the same thing. And Rabbi Nachman points out something very crucial. And this insight I'm sharing with you because this had a huge amount in terms of my own personal spiritual development. The teaching I'm about to tell you comes from Rabbi Nachman. Most people think that if I believe in God, I don't believe in idols because I believe in God. You can believe in God and you can believe in idols at the same time. That's, a, that's an amazing insight. Don't, don't, just because it's simple, don't dismiss it. You can believe in God and you can believe in other powers at the same time. This person has power, that person has power, this thing has power, that thing has power. It undermines the entire system. If you believe in one God, you also must actively not believe in other powers. It's a very, very, very important teaching, especially for this generation. Because this, this generation is so confused and, 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 and uneducated. They don't know. You think just instinctively, if I believe in God, I believe in God. That's the end of the, that's the, end of the discussion. No. To believe in God means to believe in God and not to believe in anything else. Very critical. Okay, so, so the Gomorrah's opinion is God says the first two commandments, one positive, one negative, and that's a microcosm of all 613 commandments which have 248 positive commandments and 365 negative commandments. Okay, all contained within the first two. Very good. And there's a beautiful gematria, which is, if God said the first two, then Moses goes on and continues, okay, so the gematria of the name Moses, this comes from the Geir Rebbe, we just mentioned him. Moses in gematria is 345. So listen, God says the first two, and then Moses' name is 345. In other words, Moses picks up where God leaves off. God says the first two, and Moses, which is in, in gematria 345, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. You see? So it's a perfect continuity. <laughs> um, but I heard from Reb Shlomo that, that there's also an opinion that God just said the word Anochi, I am, and that the entire Torah was cons- all contained within the word I am. And then he says that the deepest Kabbalists say that God just pronounced the letter Aleph. Now that's actually a far out teaching because the letter Aleph is silent. So, so God pronounced the letter Aleph, which is silent, 
and contained within the Aleph was the entirety of the Torah. That's uh, something worth meditating on. That's like a a very mind-expanding thought. And I gave a whole talk on just that one particular point called pronouncing the unpronounceable. If you want to look that up on Torah, on iTunes, there's there's a lot more on that. So, um, So anyway, just to conclude, we've got Shavuos coming up this Saturday night, all night learning, receiving the Torah. And we just finished the book of Vayikra, which is all these vows leading up to the Aleph of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And, um, and uh, just, uh, just want to end by saying, uh, I love you, Mom. And uh, your neshama should have an aliyah. And um, just thank you for helping me to understand and love God.